0: This is C-SPAN's Lectures in History podcast. This week, former Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld on the Bush Doctrine, Compassionate Conservatism and the War on Terror. This class is from a course called The Conservative Intellectual Tradition in America, taught by Mallory Factor, International Politics and American Government Professor at The Citadel.
1: Well, Mallory, thank you so much for your kind words, and thanks to the Citadel for the invitation and the hospitality and the wonderful tour that I had today. It's an impressive institution. General, it's good to see you again, having served on the joint staff when I was there and with distinction. Uh, It's a fine service to have this class on the uh, conservative intellectual tradition in America. Um, I... uh, I'm delighted to participate in the program uh, with so many friends and associates of mine over many decades. Uh, I turn 80 in a couple of months, and I'm told that if you multiply that by three and subtract it from 2012, it takes you right back to the beginning of the country, which suggests that I have lived one-third of the history of America. That suggests that I have probably also lived roughly one-third of the conservative intellectual tradition in America. Now, now that either means that we have a very young country, or I am very old, <laughs> or, or both. Uh, I, As um, Mallory said, I spent f- four years writing a my memoir, and uh, I've... Part of that time was taking a large 80-year-long archive and digitizing a good portion of it, and we established a website to to support the, uh, the book. And therefore, if you go into the book and read a paragraph, you can actually go to the end note and pull up the entire memo that that paragraph came out of. And I'm told it's probably the first political memoir of the information age. You know, back in the old days, we couldn't do all that. It, it just wasn't possible, and today it, it is. You've had some very fine talent uh, uh, conservatives here, Al Regnery, Michael Morone, Ed Meese, Dave Keene, Doug Feith, who I worked with closely, my old friend Art Laffer, and, uh, and others. I wish I could have been here to hear their comments and, and uh, their presentations. I think the unfortunate thing is that, that had this class been held not too many years ago, you would have had the benefit of hearing from some of the giants like Dr. Milton Friedman and Bill Buckley and other friends of mine who I worked with over the years. Uh, in fact, it was Milton Friedman who met with me in Chicago at a conference on and we talked about the concept of the all-volunteer army in the 1960s. And he urged me, I was a young congressman, he urged me to put in legislation that would have our country move from a conscript system to an all-volunteer military. And there were very strong arguments against it. And people said, oh, that would be a mercenary military. And, and of course what was happening in those days is we did have a, a, a draft system and people were told they had to serve. But it was only a fraction of the people. Uh, women did not serve; did not have to serve. Teachers did not have to serve. Students did not have to serve. Uh, conscientious objectors did not have to serve, and and it was just a segment of the society that was told that they were going to be the ones to serve. And by the way, the government was going to pay them about fifty, sixty, seventy percent of what the civilian manpower market was. And Milton Friedman found that offensive. And and I did in fact. Uh, put in legislation and testified before the House and Senate Armed Services Committee on the legislation and and eventually, thanks to President Richard Nixon, uh, it became law and the United States shifted to a different system, which has really been a, a, a be- great benefit to our country. There's no question but that the armed forces today, the men and women, every single person's there because they want to be there. They raised their hands and said, send me. And God bless them for it. And, and uh, but it was it was that concept of Milton Friedman's that he pushed and pushed early on. I um, of course the flip side of that is that that I uh, also was involved in something that was was quite apart from a conservative tradition. Uh, Richard Nixon went up to uh, Camp David back in 1970, I guess, or, and. Uh, when he came back down, he had decided to impose wage price controls on America. And uh, I remember George Shultz came to me and said, Don, President Nixon and I want you to run the wage price controls for the United States of America. I said, But George, I don't believe in them. And George said, I know, Don, that's why we want you to do it, because it's such a bad idea. <laughs> and sure enough, they were imposed. And uh, what we did was try to manage them so they didn't distort. <laughs> our economy. So we would released a lot of the smaller companies. Uh, we, we had the larger companies report and, and tried to manage them so that we, we did not disrupt the market system. One day I got a call from my friend Milton Friedman. He said, Don, you are doing a terrible job managing the wage price controls of the United States. I said, you're wrong, Milton. I'm doing a spectacular job. We are letting people out so we're not distorting the economy. And, and, and we have no permanent employees. Every person we hired was detailed over so that we could move them out, and we didn't create a permanent bureaucracy. And uh, Milton said, I know that's what you're doing. But he said, the problem is you are doing such a good job that people are going to get the wrong message and begin to believe that wage price controls actually work, which you and I know they don't. And that was the other side of, of um, the conservative tradition. It's, it's argued, of course, argued that the modern political conservatism uh, was launched by Bill Buckley and Barry Goldwater. Uh, there's no question but that it has done an enormous amount of good for people. Uh, with President Reagan at the helm, we saw conservatism brought down the Soviet Union in large measure and communism. It's helped spread freedom to places like Eastern Europe, Its free market policies have been a major cause for the stunning economic growth in our country. Uh, And other countries as well, like Chile, um, South Korea, Japan, to mention a few. Um, I remember the first time I met Bill Buckley, I was called back as ambassador to NATO to Washington when Gerald Ford became president to chair his transition. And he'd never been elected president or vice president. No one knew him around the world. I'd been ambassador and had contacts in Europe and, and uh, he said, look, there's a conference going on in Izmir, Turkey and I want you to go there and, and explain to people uh, who Gerald Ford is and what our policies are going to be and that, that Dr. Kissinger is going to be continuing as Secretary of State and kind of be reassuring. And the name of the conference was just the opposite of the conservative tradition, supposedly. It was the Bilderberg Conference. And I went there to Izmir, Turkey, walked in, looked around, didn't see too many people I knew, looked in the back in the middle, and there was Bill Buckley. And I said, oh my goodness, and I went and sat with him, and he introduced me to a woman sitting next to him who I'd never met, and um, we talked. It turned out that the woman sitting next to him was a young British parliamentarian named Margaret Thatcher who, who, who played a role in the conservative tradition. Years later, when President Reagan asked me to become the uh, Special Presidential Envoy for the Law of the Sea, he sent me around to Japan and to to, uh, Germany and the Netherlands and England and France to meet with the leadership to try to talk them out of supporting what was called the seabed mining section of the Law of the Sea Treaty. And uh, one of the stops was in London, and I met on 10 Downing Street with Mrs. Thatcher. And I started explaining to her exactly what this provision of the treaty would do. And I said, basically what it does is it, is it creates an authority, quote-unquote, kind of an Orwellian term. And that authority would be in charge of the riches under the sea. And President Reagan wants me to persuade you, if you will, to be supportive of his position that he's not going to sign that treaty because he doesn't think it's a good thing for the country or the world. And she looked at me and she said, Mr. Ambassador, that sounds to me like the international nationalization of two-thirds of the Earth's surface. And you know what I think of nationalization. And she had been dismantling the nationalized industries in England and uh, was very supportive. In any event, I'm very pleased to be here. This is a terrific institution. It's a symbol of service. Throughout many decades now, and I thank each of you for your patriotism and your dedication. Uh, first, let me make a couple of comments about things I'm I'm not gonna talk much about. The the phrase, the first time I heard the phrase compassionate conservatism, it was a friend of mine named Joe Jacobs. He wrote a book titled Compassionate Conservative. And and he was a conservative, and he was compassionate, and he described that concept. This was back I suppose, in the uh, late 1970s. Uh, and um, he was a, a businessman who cared about the country greatly. Um, he kind of talked about softening the edges of traditional conservatism, uh, and the image that Republicans might be indifferent to the plight of the poor, that, that uh, conservatives might not be understanding of uh, minorities and the importance of of equality under the law and equal opportunity, um, he uh, he he was a thoughtful person, and and I know that this topic's been discussed before, so I'll I'll not belabor it. Neoconservativism, uh, my friend Doug Fife spoke here on that, and I'm sure many of you heard him. He is a very thoughtful, uh, knowledgeable person, and and I read his remarks and and uh, found them. Most interesting and instructive, Um, the uh, that period of the Reagan administration and the Ford administration, the Nixon administration, we had this pressure for détente with the Soviet Union, and it was a uh, a theory that there were ways to find accommodations with the Soviet Union. And Richard Nixon, and, and actually Lyndon Johnson began, uh, and then Richard Nixon and Gerald Ford continued uh, with Secretary of State Kissinger as the uh, leader of, of that movement. Uh, the, the theory was uh, not unrealistic. It was that you, uh, you ought to be able to find some areas of accommodation, and if you're steely-eyed and, and careful... You ought not to compromise on something that you shouldn't compromise on, but, but by the same token, you might try, reach out, and have a, see if you can achieve a relaxation of tension, which the word detente suggests. The problem with it was that the Soviet Union at the time was increasing its capabilities and was on an uptrend. The United States was decreasing its capabilities on a relative basis. And we were moving into a, a, roughly a band of rough equivalents where, where they were superior in some areas. We were superior in some areas. I don't know any American military person who wanted to trade their, our military for theirs. But the trend lines were wrong. They were adverse to our interests without question. And there was a big debate in the United States. About whether what they were spending as a percentage of their GDP on defense, and conservatives and neoconservatives, and people like Democrat Senator Scoop Jackson and and uh, and others, stepped up and expressed concern about daytime, as did I. Uh, my concern was was a, a different one. It was clear to me that we simply had to reverse the adverse trend. We had to invest in our military if we were going to have peace through strength and, and have the kinds of deterrent capability that was necessary for our country to be able to contribute to peace and stability in the world. And the problem with Détente was they had all these pictures of, of our presidents and the general secretaries of the Communist Party uh, toasting each other with champagne glasses for agreements that were not really terribly important uh, in the last analysis. But it left the impression that, well... The Soviets really weren't bad. They, they were not bad. They were kind of okay because we could have meetings and have meals and clink our champagne glasses. And uh, and the effect of that was to erode any interest in improving our our defense capabilities. To erode our willingness to step up and put a higher percentage of our GDP into defense. When I when I came to Washington and uh, out of the Navy in 1957. Um, the Eisenhower administration, we were spending 10% of our gross domestic product on defense. Same thing was true in the Kennedy administration, the Johnson administration, and today I think we're spending about 4.5 or 4.6% of our GDP. Uh, so anyone who suggests that the the debt that we're facing and the, the crushing deficits are, are a result of the Pentagon or the Defense Department are simply not looking at the facts, because it's all in entitlements, because we've actually, as a share of GDP, we've, we're in half of where we were back in the 50s, 60s, and, and uh, in that period. In any event, the, um, uh, the, the work was put in, and, and during the end of the Ford administration, and thanks to the uh, uh, later the Reagan administration, the kinds of investment that were needed were actually... Achieved, Although the four years of the Carter administration actually reduced defense capability uh, during that period. Uh, A third thing I'm not going to get into extensively is libertarianism. I, I guess we all wish we could live in a world where we could all be libertarians and have a small federal government. But unfortunately that's not the kind of a world we live in because the first responsibility of government is to provide for the security of the people. And we live in a world that's dangerous. Uh, we live in a world that, where weakness is provocative. We live in a world where, where the idea of another country providing global leadership uh, forces one to say, "Well, which country do we want to do that? If not the United States, and uh, that's a, that's tough to answer." You look around the world, and and uh, there are relatively few countries that that think like we do, that have the same values that that have the same capabilities that we do. And uh, so I think most conservatives agree on the need for smaller government, less taxes, less regulation, and, and separating private lives from government. Uh, but but we, many of us disagree on the subject of foreign policy. I, I, I simply do not believe that the idea of, of some form of isolationism uh, is a realistic thing in, in the world we live in today. I, um, I was speaking to at Leavenworth the other day to, I think, 1,400-plus majors, uh, and I suppose some lieutenant colonels, and uh, they asked me, what, what do you worry about when you go to bed at night? And uh, I remember I was asked that question by a senator from Kansas when I was being confirmed for the Pentagon back in 2001, and my answer was, in effect, intelligence. It's a complicated world. There are closed societies. There's a lot we don't know, and and it's a dangerous world, and I I worry about intelligence. I didn't answer that question that way at Leavenworth the other day. I I answered it differently, and it goes right to this point of of our country's, I believe, um, responsibility to contribute to peace and stability in the world. I answered by saying I worry about weakness on our part. I worry about our withdrawal. I worry about our, our management of our economic uh, affairs. Uh, no one thing specific. I could have said Korea. I could have said Iran. I could have said terrorism. I could have said any number of things. But I said what I really worry about is a, a sense in the world that the United States is withdrawing, that we're less, less willing to contribute to peace and stability. Because if you believe, as I do, that weakness is provocative, that, that, that it is strength that preserves the peace. Uh, then a weakness causes people to think about doing things they wouldn't even think about doing if they saw the United States behaving in a way that, that suggested we were not withdrawing, but that we were there, around, capable, not the policeman for the world, not the nation builder for other countries, but the country that was there and, and, and willing to contribute to peace and stability. The um, few things I will touch on, as as Mallory said, I'm going to talk a bit about the age of terrorism, the uh, Iraq War, the freedom agenda that's been discussed, the challenges of fighting a war, the first war in history in the information age, and lawfare, and also a few comments about the inadequacy of our institutions, our our domestic institutions as well as our international institutions. First, the age of terrorism. My first experience with that was when President Reagan asked me to be Middle East envoy after 241 Marines and Navy corpsmen were killed in Beirut at the airport. And and, uh, you'll recall a truck loaded with explosives drove into the uh, barracks where the Marines and the Navy corpsmen were, were uh, billeted and blew it up. And uh, we put uh, some forces in along with two or three other countries and things were not going well. And I got a call from George Shultz and President Reagan asking me to leave the company. I was running a pharmaceutical company at the time and to, to leave that and, and help out. So I did. And it was um, it, it was a new experience for me who kind of served in the pentagon during the cold war and here was something that was notably different than the cold war it was terrorism and uh i remember um at that time people were writing books and giving lectures about the end of history if you remember that the uh the theory was that that communism was kind of uh behind us and uh And I ended up speaking to the US Army Association and talking about terrorism. And I said to them, look, as Lenin wrote, this is back in October of 1984, 17 years before September 11, 2001. And I said, first, as as Lenin wrote with characteristic terseness, the purpose of terrorism is to terrorize. It's not to kill people, it's to terrorize them, it's to alter their behavior, it's a technique. Um, terrorism is growing, I said, in the 30 days ending last week. This is 17 years before uh, 2001. In the 30 days ending last week, it's estimated that there were 37 terrorist attacks by 13 different organizations against the property of citizens of 20 different countries. This is 1984. And I pointed out that terrorism is not the random work of isolated madmen. Rather, it's state-sponsored by nations using it as a central element of their foreign policy. I went on to say that terrorism works. Uh, my point was that a single attack by a small, weak element, not even a nation, maybe a, an entity of some kind, a, a network, uh, a terrorist attack by a small, weak nation by or in entity, by influencing public opinion and morale, can alter the behavior of great nations and force tribute from wealthy nations. Unchecked, state-sponsored terrorism is adversely changing the balance of power in our world. And I went on and I said that while security is important, terrorists can attack any time, any place, using any technique, and it is physically impossible to defend at every moment of the day or night against every conceivable technique uh, and, and that being the case, I went on to say that, that terrorism is a form of warfare and it has to be treated as such. Uh, we can't think that we can defend against it. I, I, I watched what happened in Beirut. Truck goes into the barracks, kills 241. So the next day they put revetments around all the buildings, these concrete things around So what did they do? Terrorists started lobbing rocket-propelled grenades over the revetments. So the next thing they did was the U.S. Embassy down on the Corniche in Beirut, they they hung a wire mesh over it to bounce the rocket-propelled grenades off. Sounds logical. For every offense, there's a defense. For every defense, there's an offense. So what did they do? The next thing they did was they started hitting soft targets, people going to and from work. The the point is there isn't any way to simply defend. That causes anyone with an ounce of sense to say, that means you must go on offense. The only way you can deal with with that problem is not to treat it like a criminal act where once it happens you're going to capture the person and then put him in jail or punish him or more likely indict him in absentia. Uh, because you can't find him. He's gone. And uh, in any event, that that is the, 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 the lessons I came away with back in 1984. Um, the um, election took place in 2000. Shortly before that, President Governor Bush came and spoke here at the Citadel. And he talked about the future. And he talked about the need to bring the military, the armed forces of the United States into the 21st century, into, out of the industrial age and into the information age. Um, and then came 9-11, a day that cast the shadow over the entire Bush administration. Um, the uh, attack on the seat of economic power in New York, uh, the attack on the seat of military power in the Pentagon, and uh, except for the courage of the passengers on on the flight that was uh, brought down in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, uh, undoubtedly an attack on the seat of political power, either the White House or the Congress, uh, the Capitol. Um, And and it was a day none of us uh, will ever forget. The um, President of the United States properly recognized that the purpose of terrorism was to terrorize and to alter our behavior and to cause us to change the way we live. And uh, he did something, made a decision that was notably different from our country's behavior through different administrations of both political parties in the preceding period, decided that they had to go on the offense and, and to use the phrase that was cited earlier that, that given the lethality of weapons in, in this decade, the decade of, after 2001, and, and the, the risk that it could be not 3,000 people killed but 300,000 um, caused him to conclude that, that he had to declare a war on that and, and do everything conceivable not to defend only, but to reach out and make everything that terrorists do harder. Make it harder for them to move around between countries. Harder to talk on the phone. Harder to get money. Harder to raise funds through their, their financial networks. Harder to find a country that would be willing to house them and be hospitable to their planning and training and, and uh, uh, launching of attacks on free people. Uh, in my view, it was the right decision. He, um, he was criticized for it uh, because it was different, and, and that's understandable. And he put in place a structure uh, over a period of a year or two, uh, a structure that, that was designed to deal with a notably different set of problems than conventional war uh, and the kinds of problems we basically faced in earlier periods. And it's hard for people to adjust to that. To, to understand different, different approaches. But it was a distinctly different approach. The, uh, at the time, I should, I should add, the I think it was Johns Hopkins University had a group of people come in, mostly from the previous administrations, the Clinton administration and the Herbert Walker Bush administration. And they did an analysis that they ended up describing as dark winter where they theorized the placing of smallpox in three locations in, in the United States, major metropolitan hubs with in, uh, air terminals. And within a year, it, it, pos- it, it concluded, this independent study concluded that there would be more than a million Americans dead as a result of that. Not a nuclear attack, um, not a chemical attack, but a, in effect a biological attack, and not a complicated one, not something that, that takes a lot of money or a lot of skill sets. Imagine a million people. Imagine our country. If, if the goal of terrorism is to terrorize, to alter your behavior, imagine what the behavior pattern would have been in our country. there would be martial law. You'd have uh, people guarding their state boundaries, to try to avoid i mean I, when I grew up, if you had smallpox or uh, chickenpox or measles, they'd put a quarantine sign on your house, and you weren 't allowed to go out, and no one was allowed to go in your house. This is back in the 1930s well, you can imagine the whole country doing that, petrified because of the lack of of uh, protection against smallpox and and that was very much in in the president 's mind and, and in uh, the people in government's minds, that, that danger, that, that 3,000 was a terrible, terrible event, but that a million, because of smallpox, and, and the ease, relative ease, of imposing that kind of lethality on our society uh, by people not armed countries, not major armies, navies, or air forces. And so the structure that the president put in place, mixture of things, the Patriot Act, uh, military commissions, uh, Guantanamo Bay. Uh, these were, were, military commissions were old. They've been going on in our country since George Washington. That's, there was nothing really new about that. But, but the armed forces of the United States had experience uh, managing detention of prisoners of war. People who wore uniforms, carried their, their weapons openly, had a command structure. All, you had to, they, all they had to say was their name, rank, and serial number, and, and uh, then they could not give you any additional information, nor could you get any additional information unless they decided they wanted to give it to you. That was the, what, what the armed forces was, was organized and trained and equipped to do. Um, we were not organized, trained, or equipped to deal with, with the terrorists, uh, nor in an environment where the lethality, as Dark Winter suggested... Uh, was as uh, grave for our country, so that everyone was dealing with a new circumstance as was the president. Uh, the president made a decision to go after the terrorists in Afghanistan and, and we put together a, a plan with the Central Intelligence Agency uh, where we're with very small number of us military forces and a very small number of CIA people, and a s- lot of assistance. Supplies going to the Northern Alliance and some militias in the South uh, were able to defeat the Taliban government of Afghanistan in a matter of weeks. Um, they'd been had a civil war. Here's a country that's landlocked, poor, large illiteracy, uh, had a drought, had 10 or 12 years of Soviet occupation, every conceivable problem you can imagine had a civil war going on for years with the northern alliance trying to fight against the taliban and in a matter of weeks uh, a handful of special forces people supplies and f- massive air power from the united states were able to achieve a a the defeat of the taliban and chasing the al qaeda out of the country it was a, it was in country that uh, was run by the Taliban, which was, I think, recognized by only three nations in the world as a legitimate government. They were using their soccer fields to cut off people's heads instead of play soccer. The Women weren't allowed out on the street without a male member of their family. Uh, They weren't allowed to see doctors because they weren't allowed to go to school or become doctors, and they couldn't go to a male doctor. Uh, It was a, a terrible situation in the country, and I remember shortly after... We went into Afghanistan, and were, I had to go around to the neighboring countries and try to find support uh, for our basing and, and overflight rights and, and various types of assistance. I went to uh, Oman, and there was a, a sultan named Caboose in Oman, and, and he was at the time not in the capital. He was out in a tent meeting with his constituents, and it, it must have been 140 degrees and, in the in the tent, he sat there just as cool as he could be, and and um, we were perspiring through three layers of clothes. And he looked at me and he said he said something to the effect he he was British trained and spoke English perfectly. And he said uh, something to the effect that that 9/11 may very well be a blessing in disguise, as terrible as it was. And uh, And I said, in what sense? He said, well, it may just be the wake-up call for your country and the world that we will take actions and work together in a way that will prevent not 3,000, but 300,000 or 3 million dead because of the use of more powerful and more lethal weapons. The the concept of anticipatory self-defense was mentioned or preemption. We've always, as, as we know, have respected other people's borders and, and have uh, every country, thought every country had the right to do what it needed to do within its own country, but, but so did the other countries, the neighboring countries. With the advent of these lethal weapons, weapons of mass destruction, um, the idea of waiting until you're attacked to defend yourself is one thing if someone's going to come across your border with conventional force. It's quite another thing if you're going to be attacked with, with the weapons of that lethality. And you don't have the option, really, to wait until you're attacked, as had been previously the case when the worry was a ground forces or a bomb or a conventional weapon of some kind. The, uh, that caused the president to, to fashion... What became known as a, a Bush Doctrine, in part, uh, a, a of anticipatory self-defense. The real the real realism that uh, the, the realization, I should say, that that in fact, if you wait, it's too late. And and that is a hard thing, particularly given the unevenness of intelligence and the difficulty of the intelligence gatherer's task. Another problem that came up was the problem of of language and words matter. If you think about it, the war on terror is a phrase. It's in my view, and I told the president this, not perfect. Uh, First of all, if you say war, it sounds like you are going to win this with bullets and that it's conventional and that it's the problem for the Department of Defense when in fact it is something quite different and it's not going to be won with bullets. It's much more like the Cold War. It's, it's much more a, a, a battle of ideology and, and a competition of ideas. And it's going to take all elements of national power. And therefore, I, I argued that war on terror might mislead people, in a sense, and might cause people to uh, expect things that aren't realistic. And uh, I struggled with trying to come up with a better alternative, and I failed. Uh, <laughs> I I thought about a struggle against violent extremists uh, and and different ways of trying to do it and and the president uh, stuck with war on terror and and that's what it's still called largely today. The other problem is is the unwillingness to identify the enemy. If you think about it in the Cold War, communism was identified. We, We pinned the tail on the donkey. We talked about it. We said what it did how it didn't work, how command economies were inefficient, how unfree political systems were not the kind of systems that unleashed human energy and creativity uh, and, and, and over time, communism was largely left um, as I guess President Reagan said in the ash bins of history and and uh, a little bit left in Cuba, a little bit left in North Korea but, but not much else. Uh, I worried that we weren't pinning the tail on the donkey. We weren't calling uh, it, what it what it really is. And, and it is a, an element of the Muslim faith of, of zealots and fanatics and extremists and Islamists. And that is, that is what it is. And we were scared to death in the administration. Someone asked me one day, what kind of a grade do you give the Bush administration on, on um, the use of words and language? I said, well, I'm, you know, I'm an easy grader. I'd give them a D. Uh, I said, give us a D. I meant, um, but but why? Well, we were, everyone was very nervous about being seen as anti a religion, and that's understandable because nobody is anti a religion, and an enormous fraction of the people on the face of the earth are Muslims. And but but if the fact is that it is a a small strain of Islamists and Salafists. In, in that religion that are the extremists and are causing the problem and training people to go out and kill innocent men, women, and children, then we make, in my view, a terrible mistake by not saying it, by not elevating it and calling it what it is. And once you do that, I think it gets clear that we're not going to win that battle of ideas. That battle of ideas ultimately is going to be won within that faith. And we have to figure out how all of the elements of ours and our allies and friends around the world can deal with this threat to nation states. And that's what it is. It is a, a threat to nation states. The idea of imposing a caliphate and imposing that narrow set of views and behavior pattern on the world is, is a, something that has to be resisted. And the use of force, the training of people to go out and kill innocent men, women, and children to achieve that is something that has to be resisted. And I don't believe you achieve that unless you say what it is, identify it, and find ways to help others in that faith who don't believe that. The overwhelming majority of people in that faith that don't believe it, find ways to help them battle it within their religion in my view, is probably the only way it's going to change. Um, I've mentioned anticipatory self-defense. Let me mention the freedom agenda. Um, President Bush, in his second inaugural address, said, America's vital interests and our deepest beliefs are now one. From the day of our founding, we've proclaimed that every man and woman on Earth has rights and dignity and matchless value." because they bear the image of the maker of heaven and earth. Across the generations, we have proclaimed the imperative of self-government, because no one is fit to be a master and no one deserves to be a slave. Advancing these ideals is the mission that created our nation. It is the honorable achievement of our fathers. Now it is the urgent requirement of our nation's security and the calling of our time. So it is the policy of the United States to seek and support the growth of democratic movements and institutions in every nation and culture with the ultimate goal of ending tyranny in our world, unquote. That's a big order. That is a very big order. And, and some people thought that that, frequently the word freedom was mis, correction, was interchanged with the word democracy. And in my view, when the word democracy is used in the world, outside of our country, the, the risk is that people think of the United States, and they think of this template, and they think that we think that our template of democracy is what we are trying to impose on the rest of the world. And people don't like to have our template imposed on them. They know they have different cultures, they have different histories, they have different neighbors, they have different circumstances. And, and the use of that word, I kept trying to get within the administration, the use of the word freer political systems and freer economic systems as a, a, something that was moving in the direction that the president's quote properly says. I mean, we know that the world is a better place. If you look down from Mars on Earth, the countries that are doing the best for their people are the countries that have the freer political systems and the freer economic systems. And, and, and they are the countries that tend not to impo- try to impose their will on their neighbors. I, um, let me give you a few examples of this. Uzbekistan, uh, back in 2005. There was a prison break. I'd gone to Uzbekistan, met with Karimov, he was a Politburo member. Uh, in this old Soviet Union, and he was no Democrat, to be sure. He was a, a, an authoritarian post-Soviet leader. And he had a terrorism problem in his country. There was an Islamic uh, movement that was anti-the government and, and uh, um, operated in that region. And there was a, a group that stormed a prison and released all the prisoners in Andijan, And the government stepped in and put that down. When I met with President Karimov, he agreed to let us use his base to put in our special forces people in Afghanistan. He, he, we operated there. He was cooperative. We had overflight rights. It, it was an enormous advantage to deal with a landlocked country. We couldn't get in there from the sea. We had to have that kind of cooperation from somebody and particularly a country on the northern border of Afghanistan. And he was catching the dickens from uh, Russia. Russia puts pressure on all those Central Asian countries, so does China, and it makes their lives very difficult. So he stepped out and agreed to be of of help. The United States, with our non-governmental organizations and our human rights groups, saw the Uzbek government put down the people who uh, had... Gone into the prison and released all those prisoners and became judgmental without the facts, in my view, and uh, said that, uh, that there should be an international investigation. And, and The implication was that the Karimov government, the Uzbek government, had behaved in a manner that was inconsistent with human rights. I knew I didn't know the facts. Uh, I wasn't on the ground. But I do know what the result was. <laughs> the result was. That the president of Uzbekistan, Mr. Karimov, threw us off the base. He said, Oh, we know who our friends are. And he went back to Putin. Now, w- why do I make that point? I make the point because if this is good, how we are, that's the theory, we all, our judgment is, if we're like us is, is good, and this is bad, unlike us. My theory is if someone is on the spectrum, and they may be over in the bad side not the good side but they're coming the right way they're moving in the right direction they're improving human rights they're moving towards freer or political or freer or economic systems or both that's a good thing and we ought to encourage that instead we stuck a stick in his eye and he went right back the other way so we didn't we disadvantaged the united states from a security standpoint and and by the same token, we disadvantaged the United States and the people of Uzbekistan by sending him back and, and not keeping the forward motion with respect to human rights and freer political and freer economic systems. So I, it's a matter of how you look at it. Now, the reason I come to that conclusion, and it's not the way people mostly look at things in the world. The reason I do is because if, if we're good, we weren't good. Think of our country. Think of what we went through. We had slaves into the 1800s. Women didn't vote into the 1900s. We had a civil war. We killed hundreds of thousands of human beings. A terrible, terrible civil war. We didn't arrive this way. We're still evolving. And those countries are evolving. And they don't go from, from a, a dictatorial system to a free system in five minutes. It's a tough journey. It's a very tough journey. It was a tough journey for this country. And, 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 and we've made enormous progress. We did the same thing with Pakistan. Pakistan, Musharraf stepped up, supported us and the war on terror. He was very effective in scooping up terrorists in the cities of Pakistan. Not any good much at all in the federally administered tribal area. He, he sent his people in, tried to, got a couple hundred people killed in his army trying to get in there. They've never controlled that part of the thing. The border between Pakistan and Afghanistan is wide open. And uh, our State Department decided that it's important uh, uh, for Musharraf to go to work uh, in civilian clothes instead of in his army uniform because, you know, our president goes to work in civilian clothes. Why shouldn't everyone else? And uh, so they pointed a finger, told him he should get out of the army. He did, and he got thrown out of the country and the civilian government that came in is weaker, less helpful and we run the risk of a failed state in, in Pakistan with nuclear weapons. So It seems to me we have to use judgment and balance and not expect perfection and not expect other countries to be like we are because we weren't like we are over much of our history. It, it, it is uh, just a fact. So I look to see which direction a country is moving and, and hope that they're moving in a good direction. A war in the information age. Um, Afghanistan was the first war in Iraq that were waged in the 21st century, the information age. Enormous contrast from World War II or Korea. Blackberries, iPhones, YouTubes, all bearing images instantaneously around the world. Think of it. It, 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 it changes everything. And, and people are amazing, human beings, we, we, we adjust and we accommodate and we, we learn to absorb things. And I mean, I grew up where there was no television and, and suddenly there was television and it, it changed things. But people adjusted to it and, and, uh, and now we have all of these other things, you know, 24-hour news. We still have a government that's basically an eight-hour-a-day government, five days a week. Uh, and, and we haven't adjusted to the information age. And At any given moment of the day or night, something's going on in the world that makes a difference to the United States of America. Um, I'll give you one example. <clears throat> there was a report that a Koran had been flushed down a toilet at Guantanamo Bay. And there were riots in three countries, and people were killed, dead, gone. Now, a lie can race around the world in in 30 seconds. And and while the truth, as I think Mark Twain said, uh, the truth is still pulling its boots on. (laughs) And what do you have to do? You have to find out, did that happen? We can't lie. Terrorists can lie. They have media committees, terrorists do. They sit down and plan media things so that they can have events that advantage them in the world by using the free press and the media. We can't do that, and we don't. But what happened? Well, people died. And weeks later, Newsweek magazine that had carried the report that the Koran had been flushed down the toilet at Guantanamo uh, found out the truth, and the truth was it hadn't. It had not happened. It did not exist. And they ran a little thing in Newsweek that said, oh, you know, to the extent our our article was inaccurate, uh, we're sorry. Well, sorry, they're dead. I mean, the, the basic... Lead in in the news business is if it bleeds, it leads. And and uh, General Casey, he tried to get some positive news stories in in uh, Iraq, and the papers weren't carrying positive stories. Where well, they were putting generators in hospitals and generators in schools, and the the uh, stock market was open and they had a lot of free press. And so he he said, my gosh, there ought to be some stories. So he hired some people to write accurate stories, not lies. Accurate stories got them in the press. Once. If it was found out in the United States that that was going on, the Congress went crazy, he shouldn't be doing that, that's a violation of freedom of speech, and, and bango, it stopped. We could no longer put accurate stories in. I bet if I asked the people in the United States of America to do a poll, how many people were waterboarded at Guantanamo? The answer would be, some people would say oh, probably 100, 200. Others would say 10, 15. Others might say, I think I read three, might have been. The answer is none, zero, not a single human being was waterboarded by the U.S. Armed Forces in Guantanamo or anywhere else to my knowledge for the purposes of interrogation. The CIA did waterboard three people. But think of of how that's all been conflated and think of what the general opinion in the America is about waterboarding and about the uh, Guantanamo Bay, which is in my view one of the truly impressive prison systems uh, in in the world. Um, Zawahiri once said, quote, more than half of this battle is taking place in the battlefield of the media. We are in the media battle in a race for the hearts and minds of Muslims. Lawfare, briefly. What is it? What's happening is that Increasingly, lawyers and prosecutors are using the concept of universal jurisdiction to file lawsuits against U.S. government officials and military personnel. Um, They're putting American officials and intelligence officials at risk of legal action in an attempt to intimidate them and their families to alter the behavior of theirs and of our countries. It is, in effect, an attempt to criminalize policy differences. It's a trend that threatens to subordinate the American people, their elected leaders' actions, as well as the U.S. military, to foreign courts and rogue prosecutors. This is a sizable threat to American sovereignty. Um, I'll give you one example. We said a NATO meeting in Brussels. And the Belgium, I read in the paper that the Belgian legislature's parliament had passed a law that <clears throat> allowed anyone in the U.S. military to be prosecuted in foreign courts. Um, And I thought, well, my goodness. That means we can't have military people go to Belgium, where NATO is. If, if if, If any rogue prosecutor can decide he wants to enhance his public image, he can file a lawsuit, which he did, against General Franks, as I recall, uh, and, and I uh, so I called in the defense minister of Belgium. And uh, not being a diplomat, I was not very diplomatic. And I explained that, that NATO didn't have to be in Belgium. And that we didn't have to be in Belgium. And within a matter of weeks, the legislation was defeated, nullified, withdrawn. And and it stopped. But it happens all over the world. And my view is it's a danger, particularly not just for us, but for the world. Uh, for, think of the contribution our military made in the tsunami in, in India, uh, Indonesia, years back. Think of what we did with the earthquakes, um, earthquakes that took place in Pakistan. Our people went in and did a superb job, humanitarian job. Anytime the UN or the OAS or any international organization... has has to deal with the humanitarian crisis they come to the Department of Defense, the United States of America, and they want help, and we give it. We wouldn't be able to do that if this universal jurisdiction continued. We wouldn't want to send our military people on humanitarian missions if they were going to be prosecuted in, in rogue courts all over the country, all over the world. So it is something that it seems to me, even President Obama, who apparently is personally authorizing drone strikes potentially could be vulnerable uh, and, and uh, I think people ought to think about it. it. It would inevitably lead to isolation, isolationism on the part of our country and that would be a terrible, terrible thing for the world in my view. Last, <clears throat> a few words about our institutions. At the inflection point of the end of World War II and the beginning of the Cold War, in the Truman administration, most of the institutions that exist today were fashioned. Here at home, the Defense Department, the CIA, the National Security Council, internationally, the World Bank, the IMF, North Atlantic Treaty Organization, the United Nations, all of those things happened in that period. And they have been serving us in varying ways over the decades since. We reached the inflection point at the end of the Cold War and the beginning of the information age and the 21st century some time back and we have not stepped up to adjust those institutions to fit the 21st century Uh, and we need to they are not working well they are are rusty and NATO's made some changes it's been enlarged Uh, the Defense Department made some changes with Goldwater Nichols I mean in the old days you'd build Boulding Air Force Base right next to Anacostia Naval Base, Naval Air Station, two Naval Air Stations within 15 seconds of each other mindless just mindless. Separate air uh, runways, separate hangars, separate air controllers, separate security. It was the dumbest thing in the world. Thanks to Goldwater-Nickels, much, much greater extent we're, we're creating a joint force and, and achieving a leverage that's critically important. Um, I think there ought to be a new Hoover Commission. Uh, as there was, I think, in the 40s or 50s, to look at these institutions and make recommendations. The problems we face in the world are, are not problems that are going to be solved by one nation. Problems like proliferation of weapons of mass destruction, uh, piracy, drug trafficking. It's going to take us working with other countries and the current institutions, the UN with its vetoes, um, NATO basically oriented internally rather than externally, and the problems aren't internal today; they're external. Last, I was um, in college in 1954, and Adlai Stevenson, uh, no conservative, uh, gave a speech to my senior class, and he said he said the following: he said. The power for good or evil of this American political organization is virtually beyond measurement. The decision it makes, the uses to which it devotes its immense resources, the leadership it provides on moral as well as material questions, appear likely to determine the fate of the modern world. You dare not withhold your attention. If young Americans do not participate to the fullest extent of their ability, America will stumble, and if America stumbles... The world falls. It is, it seems to me that those words are as true today as they were then. Thank you very much.
2: We'll be right back with a discussion and some questions and answers. This is a conservative intellectual tradition in America here at the Citadel in Charleston, South Carolina. We're here at the Citadel in Charleston, South Carolina. We're back with Secretary Don Rumsfeld, and we're talking about the Bush Doctrine and the War on Terror. I'd like to start out by asking him in what sense should the global military conflict with radical Islam be seen as a recapitulation of the Cold War?
1: I don't usually use five-syllable words like recapitulation. (laughs) Okay, how do the lessons apply? (laughs) I I think that there is a greater similarity to the struggle against violent extremists, the so-called war on terror, a greater similarity with, between that and the Cold War than there is between World War I or World War II or Korea.
2: Well, what are the lessons? How do they apply?
1: Uh, one lesson, it seems to me, is that we have to recognize it's not going to be one with bullets. It's going to be one um, in a competition of ideas, a, 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 an effort uh, not simply by the Department of Defense or people with weapons, but by all elements of of national power, uh, finding ways to get that battle to be fought within the Muslim faith. The overwhelming majority of the people who are Muslims in the world are not going to madrasas to learn how to strap on suicide vests and kill people. And they're not determined to reestablish a a caliphate and and to end the concept of nation-states. They, they are, are people who are practicing their religion, but a small minority in there is. And, and the likelihood of non-Muslims to be able to persuade that group of extremists not to be extreme and, and to f- live within the nation-state concept that our world has, it seems to me, is small. I don't think we're going we're gonna to win that from, from the outside of that faith. I think we've got to find ways to support people in that faith, so that they, in fact, and it's risky, don't get me wrong. I mean, it, 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 they get killed if they, if they say the wrong thing or if they do the wrong thing or if they, they uh, say things to authorities that, that are inconsistent with what the extremists want. Uh, they put their lives at risk and their families at risk. But I, I think in that sense, it is much more like the Cold War.
2: Well, what, ex- what lessons from the Cold War do not apply?
1: How is it, how is well, another, it different? I just thought of one that does apply. Another one. we have to be patient. This isn't going to end with a signing ceremony on the USS Missouri. This isn't going to end in two, three years. It, it, it takes time. Cold War took decades, and and we have to expect that this is going to take time. I don't mean hot warfare is going to, going to take decades, but but dealing with that problem of, of um, terrorism is going to take decades. In what ways doesn't it apply? Well, it's not conventional. I mean, you know, we're this is the, each was unconventional and asymmetric and, and uh, uh, something that is, is uh, quite different than, than what we're comfortable with and what the Department of Defense, for example, is basically organized, trained, and equipped to do uh, in large measure.
2: Oh, uh, Cadet Mellon, first question from, from you, please.
0: Uh, sir, you seem to make an argument for compassion conservatism, and conservatism in a larger federal government, and you said that we can't be libertarians because we need a large defense. What's wrong with a small federal government with a large defense, and can't a libertarian have a large defense?
1: I think you misquoted me. I don't, I don't think I said I favored a large government.
0: You said that uh, we uh, couldn't be libertarian because it wouldn't make sense, something along those lines, right?
1: No, you, you're misquoting me. I, I, I said I think all of us, a great many of us conservatives uh, like the idea of a smaller government and less, uh, preci- almost my precise words, less regulation and, and less government involvement in our private lives. However, there are people in that category of libertarians who favor uh, um, a more modest and, and uh, uh, smaller defense capability and, and uh, a more isolationist approach for the United States. And my point was, I don't believe we can afford to be isolationist in this world. I think we would it would be a more dangerous world if the United States were less involved and, and l- contributing less to the peace and stability and, and had a weaker deterrent and less ability to dissuade people from engaging in, in uh, the kinds of adventures that they would avoid were the United States... Um, seen as capable, engaged, and and uh, uh, contributing to peace and stability.
2: Next question.
0: Mr. Faust. Um Earlier when you we were speaking, you mentioned that it's a.
1: Well, this is idea. not fair.
2: <laughs> He's got computers.
1: <laughs> He's sitting there reading. I
0: can see it, Mr. Secretary. There's cartoons on it. Exactly. <laughs> That's a relief. Okay. But earlier you mentioned that uh, you said that it's a battle of ideas, referring to the war on terror and similarities to the Soviet Union. But if that's the case, then shouldn't we be worried less about uh, going to war and preemptive strikes and those measures and working more on soft power and making and focusing inward on America itself so that way we'll be a country that people Mm -hmm. want to look up to and want to be like? Because we're suffering from a lot of, uh, I'd say, maladies right now that make other countries say, well, that doesn't seem to be working.
1: Will you use more or less? I, I would recast and, and respond this way. Diplomacy and military power go hand in hand. Not the military power necessarily to be used, but to exist. And, and uh, you can have a country without any military capability do all the diplomacy it wants, and, and not many people are going to listen. And and it seems to me that we we have to recognize that soft power alone is not impressive, and certainly military power alone without diplomacy is is mindless. You need to use the two together, and and I don't mean use the military power, but have the military capability for your diplomacy to be persuasive. I mean, I, I you don't see what what uh, in, in the newspaper day after day what. Uh, uh, I'm not going to mention any countries, but but uh, I could I could list probably 50, 60, 70, 80 countries. What they think? Why? Because it's not relevant to us or to the world. It doesn't affect the world. What What affects the world are countries that are factors that are political and economic and 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 militarily capable. The uh, um, the task is to have those two in close connection and and effective and and I think it is a would be a misunderstanding to assume that diplomacy alone uh, can accomplish a a great deal I'll give you an example right now I mean it, it would not take a genius to have a status of forces agreement in Iraq we don't have one diplomacy didn't get us one we can't have our forces in a country without a status of forces agreement of some kind in, in any in a continuing basis. Uh, now, I'm one who does not believe that this country has the ability to go around and nation build. Uh, I just, I think each country is different. It has its own cu- culture, its own history, uh, its own neighbors, its own experiences and And they have to do that what 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 we can do and have done in places like Korea and Japan is create a circumstance so that they can build their countries and and they, in the last analysis, have to do that um, um, the The other thing that you about your question that worries me uh, is is this um, you say other countries don't respect us or something to that effect, that, that people see problems with us, that's always been so. And the, 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 the country that is the biggest, the most influential, the most economically powerful whose movies or music or culture affect other countries is always going to be criticized. Uh, and, and, and I think the mistake is for Americans to think that, that people who point their finger and say we're not perfect. Uh, are correct. We're not perfect. But but the, the fact that every country doesn't love us or agree with everything we do ought not to be surprising because there are very few countries in the world that are like us. We're bound to have values that are different. And, uh, and I happen to think the values we have are, are good ones. And I, I, um, I, let me give you this example. I have two titanium hips. And when I got him, I had to have a therapist come to the house and make me move my legs in a way that would be good for the the new titanium hip. Three days later, I was finished. I, I knew how to do it, and I could do it myself. I said, thanks. He said, can I say something personal? And I said, sure. He said, you know, I don't think you Americans appreciate your country. He said, I come from Nigeria. And if you go at 10 or 12 at night to the grass outside the American embassy, you'll see people sleeping on the grass lined up trying to come to your country. Why do they want to come to your country? Because your country is the land of opportunity. Your country is where people have an opportunity to improve their lives. And I think we ought to be careful about believing these people who, who contend that America is what's wrong with the world. It isn't. America is not what's wrong with the world. And if it were, you wouldn't see people lined up all across this globe trying to come here. And they are trying to come here, and with good reason, because it's a very special place.
2: I'm going to shift gears for a second and ask you to take a look at the current military state of affairs in Afghanistan. And I'm going to pick up a few other countries after that. But let's start with Afghanistan. Can you assess what's going on there?
1: No. Uh, I'm out of date. Um, I've been out of the Pentagon six years. I haven't talked to any of the military commanders, the recent military commanders. I've talked to enough people who've been in important jobs and and, uh, thought they were current and weren't. And I'm not inclined to make the same mistake. I will say one thing. I described Afghanistan as a country that's landlocked, had a civil war, was occupied, was poor, illiterate, tribal. Mm -hmm. And what have they done since 2001? They've placed in power uh, Karzai. Not because he was strong, but because he didn't have his own militia, largely. The other warlords, kind of said, gee, at the Loya Jirga, the meeting to decide about this, let's make him the temporary one. That's easier than making one of the more powerful warlords the temporary leader of the country. So then they fashion a constitution, and then they vote on the constitution. And then people who'd left Afghanistan a decade, two decades earlier, start coming back. Over a million refugees return to that country. Problem was, you look around where there's a piece of construction going on, and what's happening is most of the people working there aren't aren't Afghans because they're not literate. They don't know how. They don't have the people that are trained electricians and trained pipefitters and trained to do these things. So, so they've got a difficult situation. They've got a whole generation of women who weren't allowed to to go to school or to or to learn. Um, so Karzai's in there, and and uh, there, here's a country that's not. Um, known for having a strong central government. It's it's tribal, Mm -hmm. with open borders, with tough neighbors. And what do we do? Well, unfortunately, in my opinion, uh, our government, uh, leaders in our government, started trashing Karzai publicly. Now, is he perfect? No. Are we perfect? No. Did he do everything we want? No. Um, Is there corruption in the government? Yes, someplace. Is there corruption in our government? Yeah, we have congressmen and governors go to the slammer. Uh, so with people started publicly pointing the government and saying uh, corruption, even though I know of no evidence that says Karzai is personally corrupt. Second, they, uh, they expect him to behave as a strong central government, which the country has absolutely no history of. They publicly criticize him and weaken him. Now, it, it, think of yourself as a politician, If some outsider is pointing his finger at you and criticizing you as Mr. Holbrook did, Ambassador Eikenberry did, Mm -hmm. uh, Vice President Biden did, all publicly criticized Karzai. Our Congress started doing it. What do you do? You defend yourself. That's what Karzai's doing. So we start saying things back and it's tit for tat, this for that. And and what have we accomplished? What's happened to private uh, diplomacy? And, and you, if you got a problem with somebody, go in and talk to him about it. But you don't go out in front of his country and criticize him publicly. And I think we have mishandled the Karzai government. He is the elected leader of that country. Does the country behave like we do? No. Is he perfect? No. But is he, is he the person that was selected by those people? Yes. Does he do a pretty good job? I think so. Is it a tough job? I mean, he came to me once. And said, look, he said, I've got a warlord that won't do what I want. And I want to be able to tell him that U.S. military power is going to support me if he doesn't do what I want. I said, no way. I'm not going to have you throwing around U.S. military power. That's up to the American people. I went back to the National Security Council. We had a big debate and discussion. Some people felt, yes, you should tell, assure him that our military power will stand behind him." I said, well, I don't think so. president ended up agreeing with me. I went back to Karzai. I said, look, here's the drill. You better start acting like Mayor Daley in Chicago. <laughs> you better find those warlords who want something, whether it's patronage or they want the potholes in their streets fixed, and, and, and be political. Work with them. And, and get them to do the things you want by using the power you have, which is not total. You don't have total power. Nobody does. Uh, and And he said, "Okay, and he tried, and he did. He ended up bringing some of those people into the co- into the parliament and into his cabinet mm-hmm. and 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 playing this off against that and and being political, which is what a political leader has to do unless you 're an authoritarian and uh, But I think publicly criticizing an elected official uh, drives them away and forces him to say things that causes our Congress to point with alarm look what that man is saying about us and our country. Isn't that terrible? Well, why is he doing it? He's doing it to defend himself politically in his country. Now that isn't the question you ask, but that's the answer I decided I wanted to give.
2: (laughs) It's a good answer. (laughs) How about the political state of affairs in Iraq? Can you comment on that?
1: Sure. Briefly. It's imperfect. the, the country was used to Sunni rule, a minority sect in the country. The Kurds pulled away and kind of operated semi-autonomously in the north. The Shia has the largest population and had not been in the driver's seat. Once you had an Iraqi constitution drafted, once you had an election under that constitution, majority rule the Shias took over. There was a, um, a fight within the Shia sects and elements, and in this recent election the man who got the most votes didn't get the job, Alawi. Maliki got it. He was able to stay in. Uh, he has a very tough job, just as Karzai has a very tough job, and it's easy to look at it from outside and say, oh my goodness, why don't they do this, or why, don't they, why aren't they more like we are? Um, I have no idea how I would behave if I were in Maliki's shoes, but he has um, a big problem assuring the Sunni element in the country and the Kurds that it's in their interest to stay as part of that government and not break off and, and divide that country into pieces. He has a big job keeping the Shia population, his group, from not asserting itself in a way that drives others away. He has a big job dealing with some elements within the Shia group that are largely influenced by Iran, Sadr and some of those people. He has a big job trying to maintain security in a country where the Iranian influence Military influence and, and terrorist influence, um, and political influence, I should add, is, is a difficult situation for him. Um, you know, some people criticize him for, for vacillation. Other people criticize him for failing to be an, uh, as assertive. Some people are cr- accusing him of being too assertive, and, and it's, it's, it's business as usual in politics. You know, everyone's got an opinion and everyone's fussing at everyone else. And uh, I, I think that um, it's it's not clear to me how it'll evolve in Iraq. Um, we, we keep reporting that people are being killed, and it's true. Uh, we also keep reporting that in Chicago and New York and cities around America, people are being killed, and they are. Uh, and, and it it's a shame. It's heartbreaking when people are killed. But, but it is... Um, it is not a it, that journey they're on is not going to be smooth. It's a tough one, and how how it will come out, I don't know. All I know is that at some point they're going to have to do it themselves, and we can't do it for them. Uh, we 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 most of our people over there don't speak the languages. Uh, we don't know the cultures, and um, and and you. Know, it, I used to say it's kind of like. Um, helping a person, a child learn to ride a bike, you you run behind them, holding the seat, and then you go to three fingers, and then you go to two fingers, and then you go to one finger, and if you let go, they might fall, and they might, and if you don't let go, you're going to have a forty-year-old that can't ride a bike, and and uh, and you can't ride it for them. At some point, they're going to have to write it. And it is not a science. It's an art figuring out when you go from four fingers to three and three to two and two to one. And I don't know the answers. And I know I don't know the answers. Egypt. Big. Important. Um, the Poorly handled by, by my standard. Um it's the, uh, well, I don't know what it is, 60 million people or something. It's kind of the big anchor in the Arab world. It's the fountain of, of uh, education for Arabs all over that part of the world. The, the, uh, with, with Nasser gone and, and uh, Sadat in, they fashioned an arrangement with Israel. And Sadat had the courage to go to Israel and sign that. And uh, he ended up getting killed by the Muslim Brotherhood uh, eventually. The uh, Mubarak came in, Air Force pilot, nothing against the Air Force pilots. He wasn't a Navy pilot, but, <laughs> but no one's perfect, right? Um, Air Force pilot, and, and he's been in there a long time. You can sit back and say, gee, shouldn't he have moved faster to move towards freer political and freer economic systems so that that turmoil under him wouldn't have bubbled over so fast um, and so furiously. The, um, where are we today? Well, where we are is that he was thrown out and the impression in the Arab world is that if you're a friend of the United States, don't count on the United States because the feeling is we threw him under the truck. That, that our government, our White House uh, said, you know, he's been there too long and, and so forth. Um, that's the impression in, in the Arab world, which makes other friends of the United States step back and wonder, gee, are they allies and friends or aren't they? Um, the the Salafists today, along with the Muslim Brother, Brotherhood, control, I think, it's 73% of the parliament. I could be wrong by 3 or 4%, but that's good enough for government work. Um, the, what does that mean? Well, you've got, you, you have, I don't, I'm going to guess it's 60, 70 percent of the men under 40 are probably unemployed in that country. And, and you, all of us, we see a revolution take place like that. And you can't help but think, isn't that fabulous? Isn't that wonderful? these people who have been denied, they don't have the kind of free political system and free economic systems where they're going to have jobs and opportunities and the ability to do things. And and then you look at what's happened and who's in charge. It wasn't a bunch of young people looking for jobs. You've got 73% are on the extreme side in the parliament. What's the single most valuable thing right now, I will submit, is the U.S. military-to-military relationship with the Egyptian military. Now that is not what you're going to read in the newspaper, but I would, I would submit that that decades-long interaction between our professional military, civilian-controlled, talented, capable, when I went, I was at Nasser's funeral, isn't that amazing? Um, I was there with with Robert Murphy, the diplomat among warriors, and John McCloy. And we walked in, we'd landed, and there were Soviet airplanes all at the airport. There were Soviet tanks and Soviet soldiers all over that country. This is 1970 plus or minus something. We went in and met with Sadat, who was the acting president. He was the vice president. And uh, the briefing paper said he was a lightweight, that that Nasser didn't like to have uh, strong vice presidents around him. This fellow won't last 15 minutes. Sometimes I overstate for emphasis. That's probably not exactly what the briefing paper said, but something like that. We went in and met with him, and we came away enormously impressed that here was a man of parts, of substance, and guts. And he looked at us right in the eye, and he said, Look, I have no problem with the United States of America at all, except Israel. And within a year or two, all the Soviet tanks and... Airplanes and artillery pieces and soldiers were gone. Gutsy move. Um, you know, we look at the revolution and we think, isn't that terrific? And then it starts sorting out and you see it's not so terrific. Why is that? Well, the reason is you've got a whole bunch of people that are illiterate. You've got a whole bunch of people that are unemployed. Who and And... I, I, the way I look at it is if you've got three or four people coming down the elevator at night, they walk out in the street, three of them don't know what they want to do, and one of them wants to go to the movie. They go to the movie. And by golly, in Egypt right now, the ones who know what they want to do is the Muslim Brotherhood and the Salafists. And they may only represent 10%, but by golly, they got 73% in the parliament. Why? Because they're tough, they're brutal, They know what they want and the others are disorganized, haven't planned, aren't funded. So when you see what's sweeping across that part of the world, you go into Morocco today and you'll see a lot of headscarves. You see probably compared to five, ten years ago, enormous change towards the, um, that Uh, approach in their country. You you look at Libya, it's unclear where that's going to be. You you look at Tunisia, it's unclear where that's going to be. And and the problem is, as as these turmoil takes place, the people who are best organized and, and know what they want are the people that probably are the least likely to move those countries towards free political and free economic systems. And Egypt is important. And the Gulf are important. They're vastly more important than uh, any other pieces of it.
2: You mentioned Libya and you mentioned Tunisia, but you didn't mention Syria. Could you comment on Syria?
1: Well, it's of a kind. I mean, here you've got the country that works closest with Iran, that contributes the most to uh, terrorism, acts against the United States and against the free countries, that is causing the most difficulty in Lebanon. Um, that a, a country that would be vastly better off if Assad and this, he's a member of the Alawite sect, uh, much, very much a minority sect in the country, if he weren't there. The, he, one could readily say the world would be a better place if Assad weren't there. But you can't say that because you don't know what, <laughs> what you're getting. <laughs> what are you replacing him with? if if you're replacing him with the Muslim Brotherhood and and, uh, Hamas and and Hezbollah-type people, extremists, uh, then, um, I mean, we're not their neighbors. Israel's their neighbor. I mean, if you want to know the answer to that question, I'd ask the Israelis. What would they rather have? Assad, as bad as he is, as harmful as he is, as poor a neighbor as he is, or what might replace him? And I don't know the answer to that. But uh, it's hard for me to say uh, that the world would not be a better place with Assad gone, because he and his father have have contributed uh, to a lot of American deaths and a lot of terrorist acts around the world. And um, but but whether my you know who knows? I asked a, a expert on the region not too long ago, and he he's he said he's going to be uh, he's going to be in there uh, longer than. We think, and less than he thinks.
2: (laughs) um, I saw that's all, mask. I saw your hand up.
0: Uh, Sir, you mentioned earlier that. uh, Are you going to ask
1: an easier question, Matt? Yes, sir. I promise. Uh, No (laughs) no computers.
2: (laughs) Um,
0: But you you said defense spending used to be 10% of our GDP, whereas Mm -hmm. today it's it's a mere 4.4%. I think something like 4.67, maybe. Okay. Um, with the looming budget deficit of, I think it's 15-point-something trillion now, um, you know, eventually going to hit crisis mode if it's not dealt with within a few years, um, how tough a sell is it going to be that, that we need to maintain defense spending as it is or, or we ought to even increase
1: it? Yeah, well, they've already uh, cut uh, some $400 billion, uh, announced over the decade. They've announced a second 500 billion. You're pushing a trillion. And you could abolish the Defense Department and not balance the budget. I mean, it, it, it wouldn't, it, 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 it isn't where the problem is. The problem is in entitlements. If we've gone from 10% of GDP down to 4 plus percent of GDP going for defense, the idea that the Defense Department's the problem of the debt and the deficit is it's just gross misinformation, misunderstanding. It isn't. Now, is there waste in the department? Sure, my gosh, any big bureaucracy is. I mean, if, if you want to do something in the Department of Defense, I don't know what we've got in there now, but somewhere between 800,000 and 900,000 civilian employees, I'm guessing. We have 10,000 lawyers
2: <laughs>
1: in the Department of Defense. Where's the gasp? <laughs> 10,000 lawyers in the Department of Defense. It's amazing. It, it's kind of like Gulliver Probably most of you people never heard of Gulliver, but Gulliver was a great big guy and the Lilliputians were very little people and they put little bitty threads over Gulliver and no one thread bothered him, but in the aggregate he couldn't get up. Imagine 10,000 lawyers. But with the civilian employees, a lot of wonderful employees, don't get me wrong, but if you want something done in the Department of Defense, you go to a military person. Why? Because you can bring him in and send them away when the job's done. You can bring him in, and if he doesn't do a good job, get somebody else. The alternative is go to a contractor. Sign a contract, bring him in. Contract ends, he goes out. You can't do that with civilian employees. They're there forever. You can't hire them fast. You can't fire them fast. You can't move them around. Civilian managers have four, five, six, seven different personnel systems. They have to manage in one department. It is, it, it is. the unions have control of the civilian population in that department to the point where people, if they want something done, go to a military person or go to a contractor. Now, is that waste? You bet. There's waste in there. I don't, how much? I don't know. Is there other waste? Of course. Uh, and, and there are billions of dollars that can be saved. In, I mean, I, my recollection is there's something like just while I was there, there were about $12 billion um, in, in congressional add ons that were put in that we didn't want for things that had nothing to do with the Department of Defense. When I was there, I decided to rebalance our forces, and we still had Air Force capability in Iceland. Now, they were there to track the Russian bombers. What were they called? Bear bombers? Bears. And um, we were spending $233 million a year in Iceland to have our, this is 2001, 2,3 in there, to have our, our, um, our aircraft working with NATO to keep track of Soviet bombers. The Soviet Union had been gone for a decade. And they were still there. It took me f- three or four years to get, them, get it done. Resistance from NATO, resistance from the State Department, resistance from Iceland. We wasted a billion dollars while I was trying to get them out of Iceland. No, everyone agrees that you need change and nobody wants to change. I mean, we, I canceled the Crusader artillery piece. And the, the outcry was unbelievable on Capitol Hill, in the artillery, in the army. Can you imagine at the beginning of the war, our terror, any worse name for a weapon system than Crusader? <laughs> <laughs> it took two of our largest cargo airplanes to move the Dadburn thing anywhere with its ammunition and its crew. Today, you ask, I, I don't know a single, even an artillery person. We put the money, most of the money, into uh, precision weapons, but I don't know even today an artillery person who doesn't agree that I did the right thing. But for 24 months, savage calls, the Army was furious. Who does he think he is? Thank God I did it.
2: Mr. Uh, Ford. Good afternoon, Mr. Secretary.
0: A lot of people would argue that the American way of war is total war. We found great success with it from the War of 1812 to World War II, and I think that we defeated the Soviet Union because we were prepared for total war.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, we've, On the other hand, we have saw a lot of problems. We've had a lot of struggles with limited war. Um, was there a concern within the administration after 9-11 that we were unable or unwilling to uh, take part in total war uh, in, in order to defeat our enemies?
1: Well, the, the total war works, has worked, does work in a conventional environment, and anything short of that's unwise. Trying to define what total war is in an asymmetric situation is very difficult, and uh, it is, when I use the word difficult, that's probably the understatement of the day. It, it is, it, there isn't a leading edge of the battlefield. There isn't an army or a navy and air force to go out and be defeated. These people don't operate in the open. They operate in the shadows. They send women and children with suicide belts in. So what do you have to do? You have to find their sources of money. You have to find their their countries that are are hospitable to them and persuade them they ought not to be hospitable to them. And you have to recognize that uh, for every offense, there's a defense, and for every defense, there's an offense, and, and it's, it, it's this way. It isn't, it isn't as though you, you've got this fairly clean, conventional approach. It seems to me that that answers your question. Do you think it does? Or are you uncomfortable with that an- answer? <laughs> it's very
0: uncomfortable. Yeah. I think it's an uh, uncomfortable predicament. It That's is a difficult I, I predicament. But the answer,
1: is does that answer your question? Or are you uncomfortable with the answer? <laughs> Uh, How would you answer?
0: I w- would say that it's uh, extremely difficult it is. to consider total war at a tactical level. Um, I don't think any time in our battlefield, we've, or in battle, we've had to consider uh, what total war is defined in, in the tactical. Uh, in an
1: asymmetric situation?
0: Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, we're, we're relying on uh, the tactical corporal uh, in the villages of... Um, you know, say Fallujah, Ramadi. uh, And we're we're putting a lot of pressure on these individuals to define or or, or decide uh, what lethal force is and and how to use it. It's an incredibly difficult uh, task.
1: I created a website to support my book, rumsfeld.com, and on it, I don't remember the year, but there's a... uh, I remember the date for some reason. I think it was October 16th. I sent a a note down to General Myers, and I said, uh, basically... Are we winning or losing? I don't think we have metrics. We know if you, what you measure improves. We know that you get what you inspect, not what you expect. But, but, but what are the metrics that we have that shows that we're killing or capturing or dissuading faster than they're recruiting and funding and training? We don't have metrics to do that because it's, it's a mystery. It's a, it's a black box out there. And um, you you might go to the website. The website, to my utter amazement, I I have something like 265,000 documents. I put 4,200 plus on the website. And it's had over 40 million hits on that website since February 8th of last year. That sounds to me like a lot. But that Adlai Stevenson speech I quoted earlier is on it, and that memo is on it. Uh, it may be October 16th of 03. You can enter with a date or a subject uh, or a name. But uh, it, it showed my concern with the question you're posing. How do we know whether we're gaining traction? Is it is it by... Minds changed in the ideological competition of ideas? Is it by numbers of contributions going into terrorist organizations being stopped or, or slowed in some way? Is it the number of countries that are, are becoming less hospitable to terrorist organizations training on their le, uh, landscape? Um, what, what, what are the measurements? You have to have metrics if, if you're going to know how you're doing. And um, it's hard tough stuff
2: talking about uh, metrics do we have any metrics and what's the forecast for the Iranian nuclear development program that's a tough one there what should we be doing what are the political implications
1: well um, you have a country that that has calls the United States the great Satan and the evilest Mm -hmm. thing on the face of the earth you have a country that is calls Israel the uh, little Satan and, and deserves to be shoved in the sea or incinerated, and, uh, and, and that the Jewish people have no right to a state. Um, you have a country that is actively supporting terrorism in a number of parts of the world, and they are without question, um, they, they have enormous uh, oil reserves and cap- energy capabilities. They don't need nuclear power for energy. To turn their lights on—that's for sure—and and and, uh, and everyone seems to agree. I'm no expert, and I've been out of government for six months. But everyone seems to agree they're on a path towards developing a nuclear capability. Um, you know, from the standpoint of the United States, their behavior uh, would be different if they had a nuclear weapon. They they would have a a capability that that would be persuasive and and. Um, intimidating to other countries not to us and we're a long ways away uh, but they can reach us I mean they've they've taken a ship down a river into the into the sea Caspian Sea and uh and launched a missile from it so you don't need an ICBM uh with a nuclear weapon on it to reach the United States uh, the the radar signals out of the kinds of cargo ships that go in and out of that sea are common and and uh it'd be almost impossible to figure out which ship actually did that. And and they've done it, Um, so they can do that. Now, one of the best things a person can do, it seems to me, is to try to put themselves in somebody else's shoes and and ask yourself, if you were an Iranian, how would you behave? What would you do with that capability? Um, It's a little hard because they are directed uh, by a... a, um, a faith, a religion, an ideology that is quite different from what we are. It's also interesting to put yourself in the shoes of an Israeli. I mean, a reasonable Israeli leader, knowing what they say, knowing what their behavior pattern's been, knowing if they had a nuclear weapon, that these people uh, there um, in, in charge of the country, not the vast majority of the Iranian people, but the, the leadership of the country, um, clearly would put Israel at risk. And, and one has to assume that a responsible Israeli leader getting up in the morning and looking at his country, which is about that wide, when I mean, you're in a jet aircraft coming in from the Med, you better start turning the minute you cross the coastline, otherwise you're going to be going right through Israel. It's so small. Very small population. What, what kind of risk do they want to take? One has to assume that they would do something. Uh, they, I also have to assume that their intelligence is probably better than ours. But where the Iranians are in that, on that journey, uh, which I believe is, is a journey towards the development uh, and uh, fabrication of a nuclear weapons, uh, but where they are on that journey, I don't know. I've, I've heard so many different estimates for so many years that I, I, I know I don't know it is, uh, think of it this way, it's a known unknown.
2: We have time for a few more questions. Mr. Lacey? Mr. Secretary,
0: sir, you briefly mentioned <coughs> the changing of institutions at the inflection points. And I was
2: just curious to get more of your thoughts on what you think the role of NATO is today, particularly with mm-hmm. European countries slashing their defense budgets.
1: Yeah. Well, the European countries are down below 2%. NATO, if you take the United States out, aggregate it, The two highest percentage of GDP in NATO today, ex-US, are Greece and Turkey for the wrong reasons. And they're declining. In the aggregate, they're below 2%. Um, Their social network is enormous and growing. Their demographics are bad. Uh, The the chances of their doing anything to increase their defense capabilities are modest. (coughs) where does that leave you? NATO was organized to defend the NATO treaty area, Western Europe, North America. Most of the problems they face are external, and they're they're drugs and proliferation and piracy and and various things that exist, and and that if if you wanted to create NATO today, you couldn't. It's grown. When I was the ambassador to NATO in the early 70s, it was... uh, Fourteen countries in the military command and France in the political part, but not the military command. Today it's, I don't know, 25 or something. And that's good that it's enlarged, in my view. A lot of the Warsaw Pact countries are in and others. But, but their problems are outside of NATO. Therefore, I think what they ought to do is they have a Partnership for Peace program. And they have relationships with a number of countries that are not NATO members at the present time. Uh, And that's a good thing because they develop the ability to work with NATO countries and and, uh, the like. Georgia, for example, is one. The other thing they ought to do is is develop some sort of a linkage with other like-thinking nations. I mean, you've got Singapore, Japan, South Korea, Australia, New Zealand, India, a number of countries that are democratic and, and they're not like Western Europe or the United States, but they're they they're, have similar interests. They have freer political, freer economic systems. And, and some sort of a linkage with some of those countries, it seemed to me, would, would enable NATO to arrange itself with added military capability uh, and do a better job of, in, of, of pr- assuring the interests of the NATO countries um, from a security standpoint much better than they can today. But that is a, a reach for them, if you will, and I, I think it'll happen. I just don't know how fast it'll happen, but that, that is the kind of an institutional change that they're going to have to make if they want to be relevant.
2: Ted Stewart. Uh, this is slightly hypothetical.
0: Uh, in your opinion, if the Assad regime did fall in Syria, do you have any um, possible thought on what our, the Iranian leadership's course of action may be?
1: Well, I don't, but they have enormous influence in Syria. They're important for Syria's weapons, they're important for uh, politically, they're important financially. Uh, I think that um, the, uh, it would be unlikely if the Assad government fell that it would be replaced by an Alawite government because it's such a small minority in the country. I think the Iranians would have enormous influence as to what actually evolved as that leadership. And my guess is it would be something that would be much more to the uh, side of, of the extremists and, and the uh, B- Muslim Brotherhood or Salafists or um, the, the, the people who uh, would better fit the Iranian leadership's um, view of the world. But that is a guess. And besides that, I don't answer hypothetical questions.
2: Cadet Slater. Mr.
0: Secretary, uh, you talked about the spectrum of more and less free states. Mm -hmm. So when we're doing our foreign policy, how how do we uh, decide whether we support or chastise a state on that spectrum? Is there a certain minimum below which we can't support a state? Or is it, like you said, the rate of improvement that matters, and how do you decide that?
1: Imperfectly. Our country, uh, we have a Congress, we have an executive branch, uh, we're influenced by the media, we're influenced by international views on these things, and we kind of reach around and try to figure it out. Um, I I think the truth is if we decided we we would be purists and we would only have relationships with countries that were like us, we would have about three or four relationships in the world. And then if we wanted to say we not only will only have relationships with countries that are exactly like we are, but we won't even have relationships with those countries unless they break relations with countries that aren't exactly like we are. Then we'd have nobody. So we know that we can't be purists. We have to say, okay, we're going to deal with people who are different. And the overwhelming majority of the people in the world are different. Their countries are different. And we have to accept that. Now, is there a minimum? Well, yeah, I mean, Nazi Germany, going around occupying other countries, doing things. There's a there's a limit. Um, it ought the limit to be because Musharraf goes to work in a uniform instead of civilian clothes? I think not. Why? What do we have? We have. If if you take a piece of paper, and you you, you draw a circle, and then you divide it into threes, and you say these are our political interests. We want to deal with countries like our political... We have economic interests. And they're different from our political interests. We have countries where we have terribly important economic interests and don't have political similarities. Then we have security interests. And some people say, well, human rights trumps security. Or economic interests trumps security interests. And, you know, can be arbitrary. Like I don't think anything trumps anything, in my view. I, I think we have to make a judgment. But if you look at the... draw a circle... You're going to find some countries where we only have political interests, or we only have economic, or we only have security, some where we have two of the three, and very few where we have all three. That, that is why I made my point. I think what's important is not our countries exactly like we are, because there's so few that are, but, but which way are they moving? Are they, are they moving in a direction, can, how can we encourage them to move towards freer political and freer economic systems because that is in their interest, that is in our interest, that is in the world's interest. And anything we can do to encourage that, becoming highly judgmental and making a decision simply because they're different than we are, we're not going to deal with them. We did this. We did it with Pakistan. We did it with Indonesia, two of the largest Muslim countries in the world, 10, 20, 30 years ago. Oh, it made us feel terrific. Just, we felt wonderful, think of it. We didn't like the way the Indonesian police were behaving, so we severed military-to-military relationships. So what happened? Decades went by with the largest Muslim country on the face of the earth having no military-to-military relationships with the United States of America. Now, wasn't that just wonderful? What did we help? All we did was deny us those relationships, deny them the ability to work with our fantastic military. We did the same thing with Pakistan. When 9-11 occurred, we didn't have military people in our country who had any linkages with the military in Pakistan. When the earthquakes occurred, we, we poured assistance in there, in Chinook helicopters. And by golly, the next year, the, most, the favorite toy in Pakistan was a miniature Chinook helicopter. It did more to reduce support for bin Laden in Pakistan, our humanitarian aid, than anything else. What hurt us was we didn't have any military-to-military relationships to speak of. So so I think one has to not try to make us feel good by saying, oh my goodness, that country is doing something we don't do. We don't believe in it. That's wrong. They shouldn't be doing it that way. Therefore, we're not going to deal with them. Who does that help? Does it make them more like us? Does it make them move towards freer political systems? No, not likely. So I don't know the answer. And it's as I said, it's, it's an art, not a science. And, it, and no one person decides it, even a president, because it was the I think it was the Pressler Amendment in the, in the Senate and the Congress that stopped our relationship with Pakistan. Could be wrong. It could have been Indonesia. But, but you know, I'll give you one other example. Right now, I don't have any idea who knew bin Laden was in Pakistan. If I'd been bin Laden, I wouldn't have told a soul where I was, except one person. And that person would be out interfacing, getting me what I needed, doing what I needed done, but I would not have told a lot of Pakistanis. And what, what is the common view in America? And I don't know, maybe it's right. Common view is, come on. He was was within stone's throw of of, of West Point of Pakistan. How could it be they didn't know? That's what what they say. I I was in the Pentagon for six years this last time. I don't have any idea what's going on in those estates up the Potomac River. One mile, two miles, three miles. (laughs) Big walls, big trees. I don't know who's in there and I don't know what's happening. And I know I don't know. Now, is it possible that someone in Pakistan knew? Sure. Does anyone have any evidence that they did? Not that I've heard. So what's happening? People are rushing to judgment. Here's Pakistan. You know, by golly, they're not helping us as much as they should. They got, they got mad. They, they, they stopped us, our ability to transit their country to, to support Afghanistan. They started saying we can't use this base for this, that, or the other thing. They started threatening that they can't use overflight rights. So what do we say? Well, let's cut off military aid to Pakistan. And, and, and you get this action, reaction, action, reaction, rush to judgment. Well, by golly, when someone can come and tell me that they have hard facts, that the Pakistani government, I don't mean some Pakistani, but Pakistani government, knew that bin Laden was there and, and were uh, housing him and, and protecting him and being hospitable to him, then I'll believe it if I see some evidence. Uh, until then, um, I, I don't, I, I know, I don't know what's going on in those estates up the Potomac River from the Pentagon. When anyone drive up, driving up there looks at it, anyone could be in there. It, how many years did it take to find this guy Bolger? Was that his name from Massachusetts? The 10 most wanted criminal on the FBI's list? I think it was 20, 30 years they were looking for this guy. They finally find him out in California. After decades, in our own country, we can't find us. The Department of Defense and the CIA are not perfect at manhunts. That's not what we do, particularly. It's hard work, and, and it's, it's difficult. But, but we're doing the same thing in Egypt right now. The, the Egyptians got mad, and, and they uh, kept some Americans in and wouldn't give them visas to get out. One of them was the son of a secretary of transportation. People in the Congress started saying, cut off military aid to, to uh, Egypt. I mean, my goodness, that's the only, only linkage we've got is that military to military relationship in Egypt right now. We sure don't have it with the Salafists or the Muslim Brotherhood in the parliament. We, we've got to be mature and, 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 and not purists. I mean, I'd love to be a purist. I'm, I'm as easy to do that as anybody else. And then you have to say, wait a minute, what are, what are the effects? What, what am I? What's really going to happen if I make myself feel good by uh, saying, by golly, I'm not going to tolerate that? And, and I, I, think, I think it's hard in our country because we get worked up in the pre- Congress and we get worked up in the press and, and, uh, and, and it, it does make us feel better if something wrong happens and we want to put our foot down and say, by golly, that's wrong and I'm not going to tolerate it anymore and then you look at what happens. How would you like a failed state in Pakistan with all of those radicals in that country, with the intelligence organization effective, with, with infected with Taliban relationships, nuclear weapons? Imagine. Imagine where we would be much worse off. Does that mean there's not a limit? No, there is a limit. But where is it? Well, that's, that's going to have to get sorted out by... People uh, above my pay grade
2: our time is rapidly coming to an end, and um, you like want shorter
1: think. answers I can tell
2: no 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 I'd, I'd, I'd like to continue much longer um, I, I could do this for hours with you. The course is the conservative intellectual tradition in America we started lo- started looking at conservatism beginning with Aristotle and we we talked about the fact that the conservative movement really came together as a coalition, a fusion movement with traditionalists, um, libertarians, um, neoconservatives, really to fight the Soviet Union. That was the rallying cry. Mm-hmm. Soviet Union mm-hmm. has come to an end. It, what will keep this coalition and together? And the world's
1: a better place for it.
2: And the world's a better place for it. Is it Islam, radical Islam, that, that, that'll become the... Cohesion that keeps this move that keeps the movement together, or will the movement dissipate? Where do you see it ha- heading?
1: Well, it, it has it has been a, a uh, as you suggest a coalition, and coalitions tend not to be permanent. They tend to evolve in some way as circumstances evolve. Um, I think clearly the the continuing threat from. Uh, Islamists and radical uh, Islamists uh, is something that, that causes a large fraction of our population to recognize that we need to behave in a, in a certain way that protects the American people. I think the, the, um, the excesses we've seen in, in terms of the debt and the deficits and, and the, the reality that we have a model in Europe that has demonstrated that it doesn't work and that we would make a terrible mistake to model America on Western Europe, um, and I think these 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 kinds of issues, as well as social issues that people um, uh, discuss in the political context, are are going to undoubtedly cause differing people in diff- to different extents to be part of what has been now during my adult lifetime a a conservative movement that has uh, ebbed and flowed. It, it has become a majority and then less so, depending on circumstances. And I, th- I think that that necessity is the mother of invention, that fear does focus the mind. And I think that the uh, the events of 9-11 and, and the large number of um, terrorist activities at various places around the world and the recognition that um, the lethality of weapons uh, today is sufficiently different that it changes our margin for error. I think the threat of debt and and the prospect that this country could end up for the first time with a generation that had fewer opportunities and less prospects uh, is a serious problem. And I think it, it registers on people. It is a it, it, that amount of debt is is it can't be sustained. It is crushing. It'll change the lives of the next generation if we don't uh, decide and resolve that we're going to do something about it. I don't know. It, it, in life, there is a tipping point, and uh, where it is, nobody knows. You can't you can't predict it. But if today we've got something in the mid-forties percent of the American people receiving from the federal government and not giving, not participating. Gets the benefits of our national defense and the benefits of the things the federal government does, but pays no federal taxes. One has to worry that they um, that they might have a pattern, as we've seen in other countries, of supporting people for public office who will promise more. And if they do, um, then they will get more. And, and more means more debt and larger deficits and less prospects for the next generation. So, so where is that tipping point? Is it 45 percent? Is it 50 percent? Where is it? And, and, uh, I don't know but I I think that the um that we have to be realistic about it that that the the conservative intellectual tradition in this country has not been static it's evolved is not likely to stay static in terms of the mix of reasons that people support that movement that tradition and I also think that that um it, it, it's inevitable that it will ebb and flow. I, 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 all I can say is that uh, as a conservative I think that we have to recognize uh, we have to not allow us to arrive at a tipping point where the behavior pattern alters the direction of this great country. And I I think that uh, we, we uh, I had an Asian leader call me on the phone and, and say to me about six, eight months ago, I never thought I'd live to see the day when adults in the United States government would be modeling America on Europe, that that model doesn't work, it's not working, they're in a crisis, an economic crisis, and we can't let that happen here.
2: Wow. A great honor and a great education. Secretary Donald Rumsfeld, thank you so much for joining us here at the Citadel.
1: Thank you, sir. <laughs> what year does it take it back? To you? 1772 sir. Engineering major? It, it probably worked better <laughs> when I was only 78. <laughs> then it would have taken you alright, thank you
2: thank you all gentlemen the reading for week,
1: thanks for listening to
0: C-SPAN's lectures in history you might be interested in C-SPAN's newest podcast Book Notes Plus Brian Lamb has wide ranging conversations with authors and historians the 30 minute podcast is available every Tuesday find it and follow wherever you get your podcasts